All right, thanks, men. Hey, good morning to you. You all right? Hey, I know this feels like a big ploy to expose those of you who show up late. You know, we, we close the back doors of the church and it's daylight savings and we make you come in the site like, hey, we love you, even if you show up late. I know it, I felt like I was sitting there going like, this feels like we tried to do this on purpose. It feels like we're trying to keep people out. Like, we want to make sure that you want it uh, when you come to our church. You got to take you through the maze and the building and daylight savings and all that. Was, that's funny to me. All right. Uh, hey, good morning. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name is Steve. You picked a great Sunday to join us. We are looking at the book of Revelation, which uh, for many of us is probably the clean part of your Bible. You ever read Revelation? You go, I, I don't know what's going on here. Let me get back to John and the stuff I understand. Uh, but we are in the book of Revelation. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 6 is where we'll be today. We're going to finish up Revelation chapter 6. This is, um, this is an important text in your Bible. Uh, when you get to the book of Revelation, uh, themes in your Bible that are acorns in the New Testament, by the time you get to Revelation, they're full-grown oaks. So a lot of Revelation feels a little bit in your face because the, the, um, the distinctions that are made in the book are so drastic. It's so uh, sheep and goats and left and right and right and wrong, and there's only two camps and uh, if you've been with us through the course of the book of Revelation, you've seen John talk in the first couple chapters about Jesus, who he is, and what he has done. And he's talked about the church age and all of what was going on there. Chapters 4 and chapter 5 was our prelude to the entire book, saying that God himself is worthy to judge, that the Lamb is worthy by virtue of giving his life and being slain and ransoming people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, as I have read through this book, you know, several times as I read and meditate on it, I want to show you something just in a quick uh, overview of the New Testament that's going to give you a sense of what we're going to look at today. So if you've, have you found Revelation 6? Are you there? I, I, I have some scriptures here on the screen that'll really help frame up our minds. As I've been reading Revelation and really throughout the New Testament as you read Paul's letters to the churches, uh, the themes that Paul writes uh, land, as I said, in the book of Revelation. So you can follow along with me on the screen if you want. I, I just want to read some sections that get us thinking about these big themes that we're going to see here today. Okay, this is Ephesians 5, 1 to 6. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God." Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see what Paul's writing about? He's writing about two ways of life. Here's Philippians. Philippians 3, verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their, they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. 
but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Two ways of life. Colossians chapter three. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Two ways of life. You see how Paul is drawing our, our eyes to the future in our sanctification and our life change now. You, you with me on that? You see how Paul is balancing those two realities? Let me give you one more. Here's Peter. First Peter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Two ways of life. This is no small theme throughout the scriptures, is that when Jesus comes and dies for our sins and is buried and is raised again the third day, he lives to ransom people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and he ransoms us into a way of life. And what you're going to see today is two different groups of people with two different responses to God and two different lives that they've led. Up to this point, as the seals have been opened by the Lamb, last week we looked at impersonal forces that govern a society and a culture. You saw political forces. You saw societal restraint removed. You saw economic forces that happened. And by the end of this fourth seal being opened, that death and Hades claim a quarter of the people on the planet. Well, when we read the book of Revelation, what we're looking at is not merely an accounting of the end times, right? It's not merely a listing of events as if, well, it's going to be this on this day and this on this day and this on this day, and then Jesus comes back. The book of Revelation is given for us to read and to be blessed by hearing, keeping, and obeying it. Remember that from Revelation chapter 1? So this text today is going to take you into the future. It's going to show you the end of every single decision that you make on this planet. Imagine, now, no matter how old you are, imagine the wisdom you have now. And if you were to take yourself back to 13, 14, 15-year-old you, would you be able to save yourself some regret? Would you be able to save yourself some pain in this life with the counsel and the wisdom that you have now? Well, that's what this text is. 
This text takes you into the future of all of us and looks back on the course of our lives and causes us to live with a different perspective that remarkably aligns with what Paul and Peter have just told us in their New Testament writings. All right? You all set? You ready? Revelation chapter 6. Like I said, we're getting into the fun part of the book. Uh, So buckle up. Put on your bike helmet. Here we go. All right, let's pray and ask God for his grace here this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And Psalms say that the unfolding of your word gives light. So we ask this morning that we would come and gather around your word, eager to hear what you would say. For those who come in here this morning in the grip of sin, may they know the wonder and the beauty of having their lives washed in the blood of the lamb and to be presented pure and spotless before your throne. For those who come in this morning and are facing difficult decisions about whether or not they're gonna be faithful to you or faithful to their career, whether or not they're gonna be faithful to you and to speak what is true and to hold it in a wicked and evil day, or will they will cave? I pray that you would give them strength. I pray that you would give your church a backbone as a result of us looking into this text this morning. May we be different in this day and in this culture. May we be men and women of God who hold to the word of God and give testimony to it. That you would give us courage, that you would give us insight, that you would give us wisdom to live lives worthy of the lives that you have called us to live. Father, we don't do that in a way that is arbitrary. We do that in a way that is desperately serious to know what you would have us do in these situations of our lives. So Father, encourage us and strengthen us. Give us courage and power and fill our hearts with the eyes of faith to be able to be faithful to you as we parent our kids and we work in our careers, as we uh, love our spouse, as we give and serve for the glory of your name. So Father, honor our few minutes here today. May this text come alive in our hands and in our hearts and may we see you in new ways. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Let me tell you where we are here. Uh, In terms of a timeline, we're probably in, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So between Revelation chapter six, about the fifth seal, What you have uh, from the book of Daniel is that the abomination of desolation, which is the Antichrist, will take his seat in the temple of God in Jerusalem. He will proclaim himself to be God. He will eliminate, eliminate any and all worship to anybody other than himself, and he will have total and absolute control over politics and society and economy and world worship. And that is a dark day. And what is, you're going to see here, as I've already mentioned here, are the people who are affected by that reality. Okay, and that's how we're gonna see the, the seals opened up here by the Lamb. We're looking at seal number five and number six. Revelation chapter six, starting in verse nine. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. Now, Uh, This 
this seal, as it's opened, you're gonna see several different things about these souls who are under the altar. This is your first mention of the altar uh, as such in the book of Revelation. There's some heavenly furniture that you're gonna see throughout the book of Revelation. You're gonna see the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant of God in heaven. This altar is probably the altar of incense uh, that was in the uh, holy place. You had the altar of incense, the bread and the lampstand that were outside of the most holy place where the... Uh, the Ark of the Covenant was. And what you're going to see beneath this altar are those people who have a recognition of two very important things. They have a recognition of the lives that they lived on earth. They are aware of what it meant for them to live faithfully in their day. And they take that memory into heaven. I don't know what you think happens in heaven, but apparently there is an awareness of the lives that we have lived during our time on earth. So they have an awareness of who they are and what they have done for the sake of Jesus. And number two, they have an awareness of who God is. They are about to pray a very important prayer connected to the character of God and who he is. And I'll I'll show you that here in a second. But these souls are alive and aware in the presence of God. And now you're going to see several things here about who they are and what happens. And this is your first of two groups of people. So here's your first group of people under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain. Uh, that word is, happens about six times in your Bible. And we've mentioned it before that in Revelation chapter 5, it's the lamb who was slain. You remember that? Worthy are you because you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and nation. In the Uh, what is it, number two, the second seal, the great sword that was given to the second rider, the rider known as war. A great sword was given him and uh, it was permitted him to take peace from the earth so that men should, this word, slay one another. The only spot outside of the book of Revelation it shows up is in 1 John 3. And in 1 John 3, John says, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one who murdered his brother. So, What you're going to have here in the fifth seal is fundamentally religious persecution. Remember the the end of 1 John 3, 12 says that why did Cain murder Abel? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. After sin happens in the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the very first incident of trouble that shows up in the family is trouble over religious persecution about how worship ought to happen. It's in Genesis 4. And then you move through the biblical account in the book of Genesis to the point where Noah is living. And it says that the intent of man's heart is only wicked continually. And what happens with Noah? God judges through the flood, right? And out of that, he saves Noah and his family. You get to the time of Abraham, and God gets ready to come in judgment again at Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, I will come down to see if the outcry that comes from this city is as bad as I've heard it to be. And you get one of the great pictures of prayer that comes from Abraham. And Abraham goes before God and goes, God, far be it from you to sweep away the innocent with the wicked. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And Abraham argues with God to the point to where he goes, God, if there's 50, will you spare it? God says, I'll spare it. If there's 40, will you spare it? If there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10, will you spare it? 
And by the end, three are saved and God destroys the city. So religious persecution is no small idea in the scriptures. From the very beginning of Genesis to here in Revelation chapter 6, there are those who will hold to the truth of God and who will be killed because they believe it. Now watch why they're slain. The word slain is not, uh, they don't just die of old age. It's premeditated murder of those who hold to two very important things. This is what every Christian ought to hold to in every season of life, in every culture, and in every place, and every time. These are the marks of the faithful. They're slain for two things. One, they're slain for the word of God. These people aren't slain for their opinions, they're slain for their convictions. That there are certain things in their life that they declare they will not move on. And they're tied to the objective truth of the word of God. This is how Revelation begins, that Paul is on the island Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why is Paul there? He's been persecuted. He's been pushed out of Ephesus to where now he's in exile in a place where you can't say that here. You can't hold to the word of God here. You need to stop preaching in Jesus' name. What happens in the book of Acts when the apostles start preaching? They get gathered together by the religious leaders and they tell them to stop preaching and speaking in his name. So that these souls who are beneath the altar in heaven are slain because they hold to a standard. Now they don't just believe things. They don't just hold the truth, they have a testimony, which is the second part of why they are slain. Those who have been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they have borne. These souls believe that the word of God is true and that the word of God applies to the culture and time in which they live. Now, can I do some preaching there for a minute? Are there some standards that the Christian church holds to that applies to the culture and the day in which they live? Are there places where the church says, we will uh, submit to authority, but on these things we will not move? And these folks are experiencing the consequences of holding to the word of God, to bearing testimony in a difficult and wicked and evil day and saying, uh, like Luther said, my conscience is bound to the word of God. Do what you will. And here's where they stand. And they die for it. <clears throat> now, what's interesting to me here, you know, through the New Testament, there's a a call. Remember when Jesus is dying and he's on the cross and he cries out to God his Father and he says, uh, forgive them for they know not what they do, right? When you get to Acts chapter 8, Stephen is martyred because he's, he's holding to the word of God and the testimony that he bears to Jesus and he's laying the guilt at the feet of the Jews who are there and they plug their ears and rush him and they stone him to death and at the end of his life, he says, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. Paul, 
tells Timothy, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That our prayer as a church is longing for people to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It burns in us as the people of God for people to turn from wickedness, to turn from deceit, and to turn to the word of God, to the truth about Jesus and who he is. But when you get to heaven, the prayers change. Look at verse 10. They cried out with a loud voice. You've heard some loud things in heaven up to this point, haven't you? You've heard thunder, you've heard angels, you've heard all of creation saying, worthy, worthy, worthy is the lamb. And now here are people who went to the end holding to the word of God and the testimony that they have borne in their day. And they're still praying. Don't you think you'd stop praying once you see Jesus? I mean, honestly. Once you see the lamb and, and God the Father on the throne. But these martyrs are holding God. They're demanding something of God. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord. That, there's two words for Lord in the, in the Bible. One is kyrios, which is typically the word you see. This is not that word. This is the word despotes. It's where we get the word despot. That a synonym for despot is tyrant. It's someone with complete, absolute, sovereign, holy, powerful control. And these martyrs are crying out to the one with all authority, who's holy, distinct from all creation, which is what we've already seen in the book of Revelation 4 and chapter 5. Two, he's true. that he's accurate, he has a uh, appropriate assessment of all reality. How long? You ever pray that? You ever experience life in this world and difficulty, hardship, pain, suffering, and you go, God, how long? You ever look at stuff in our culture, on the news, And your heart twists in your chest, and you go, God, how long? This is not a small prayer, especially for those who've been martyred for their faith. This is a cry of anguish. Let me, let me read to you here. This is from, um, let's see if I can find it fast. Try to find Habakkuk real quick while you're preaching. Ever have that problem? No. Uh, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. Uh, let me show you. This is Habakkuk. Let me tell you. This is great. Habakkuk 1. O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
Or cry to you violence and you don't save? Why do you make me see iniquity and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth for the wicked surround the righteous so the justice goes forth perverted. You ever feel like that? You ever have those kind of honest prayers with God? Habakkuk did. And as the martyrs are in heaven under the altar, have experienced being slain and murdered for the truth that they held in their day, they demand something of God. O Lord, sovereign and true, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Is everything made right when you go to heaven? Not according to Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. He is not done with his work. And as the martyrs step into eternity, they lay before God the blood that they have spilled in the name of Jesus Christ and holding to the word of God in their day, and they demand of God judgment. You ever read the, uh, you know what the imprecatory psalms are? Imprecation means to curse. There are these psalms that you read and you work your way through the psalms and you read them and you go, Can I, am I allowed to pray that? Can I pray that my enemies get hit by a bus and are totally devastated? And I don't know, David can pray that. Can I pray that? This is the fulfillment of every imprecatory psalm. That the martyrs in heaven pray in their knowledge and awareness because they see God completely rightly, they pray for a very particular aspect of God's character to be made seen and visible. In fact, this is the, um, this is the unction and the weight that propels the narrative forward in the book of Revelation. How long will you judge? Judge means to have a standard and evaluate by it, right? That's pretty easy to understand. Number two is that word avenge. You've probably read it in the book of Romans. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but make, NIV I think says, make room for the wrath of God. For God has said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And now as the martyrs step into heaven, they demand payment. They demand that God judge. They demand that they, he hold those accountable on earth who have slain his people. That term dwellers of the earth is is somewhat of a technical term in the book of Revelation. It always pertains to those who do not believe in God. The only other time, well, there's several, this avenge word is a rare one in the scriptures. It it happens twice in Jesus' parable about, you know the parable of the persistent widow? It's in Luke 18. Jesus tells this parable uh, to his disciples to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. And he tells this story between this widow who has an adversary who's just wearing her out. And what she does is she goes to the judge. And the judge doesn't fear God or man. He's in a place of uh, political power with no morality whatsoever. And she just wears him out. And she comes and she comes and she comes. Oh, where are you eating today? I'll follow you to church. Hey, I need justice. I need justice. I need justice. I just, where are you going? Are you driving home? I'll follow you. Hey, I need justice. I need justice. I need justice. I need justice. I need help. I need help, 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 help. Come on, come on, come on, come on, my help. 
And the unrighteous judge goes, though I neither fear God nor man, I'm just going to give this woman uh, uh, her justice just because I just want her away from me. I give up. I yield. And it's that word avenge. And Jesus says, well, will God delay long over his elect to cry to him for vengeance day and night? I tell you, he will not. He will bring justice and vengeance quickly. And it's the only parable that ends with a question. You know what the question is? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? See, one of the things I found when I pray, I pray for about like things out here, you know, about 20 minutes ahead or like three weeks ahead. But it's interesting that when Jesus talks about prayer, he recognizes that a lot of our prayers will not be answered until the day he comes. How many of my prayers take into account the future day where God will make all things right? See, we live in this time of tension where we long for things to be reconciled and restored, right? When does it happen? Revelation 20. Revelation 21, Revelation 22. Are you living your life in such a way that your final and ultimate hope is Revelation 20, 21, and 22? Or are you living that like 2023 is going to be the year for you? When I graduate, there will be peace and comfort and safety and delight and wonder and blessing. These souls go to heaven with unanswered prayers. These souls give their life for the word of God and have unanswered prayers to where God has not judged yet. Look at verse 11. Here's the comfort. They were each given a white robe, which is a blessing and a recognition of the lives that they lived were worthy according to God's standards. And they were told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves have been. What a verse, man, that's a verse that's a drag, isn't it? What do you mean there's more that have to die? There's more that have to take a stand in their day for the word of God and bearing the testimony that he calls us to. You rest, you wait. There are more of your fellow servants. That's the word doulos, There's two identities here for martyrs. Martyrs serve God first and foremost. Two, they're a part of the family of God, that they have brothers. Hebrews talks about us being surrounded by a cloud of witnesses. It doesn't mean that they're all up here looking down at our lives. It means in their day, they gave a witness to the truth of God and his word. And we are surrounded ahead and behind with people who will take a stand in their day for the word of God and the testimony that they bear. Does God have a full number? He does. And there's a lid. There's a cap. When the last martyr gives his life, it's done. And judgment comes. Now, there's your first group of people. The souls who had given their life for the word of God and the testimony in their day. Now you have another group of people that starts in verse 12. Here's the sixth seal. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold. Now, uh, we looked at societal forces that seem to be things that we can count on, right? That economy, given, well, I don't know if our economy is something to count on. You get the idea, but 
uh, we saw restraint that happens in a society where people don't just go off the rails and murder one, each other, one another at large. We saw restraint happen in the political realm. Here, we're gonna look at the true foundations of things. These forces, God removes his hand. Now God begins to shake the very foundations of our planet. The things that characterize the Genesis 1 and 2 creation. When he opened the sixth seal, behold, there was a great earthquake. Earthquakes show up when Jesus dies. Earthquakes show up at Sinai. Earthquakes show up uh, when God speaks and judges. He uses earthquakes to judge the Philistines during uh, Saul and David's day. Uh, It's a foundational shaking that the earth itself convulses. Number two, the sun became black as sackcloth. Commentators think that when the earth shakes and tectonic plates begin to move, that there are going to be massive volcanic kinds of eruptions that would spew ash into the atmosphere and darken the sun. The full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanishes like a scroll that's being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. In Revelation 16, all the mountains and the islands flee away, and they're no longer found. It's probably here that creation, that the uh, the earth itself begins to convulse, and earthquakes happen, and now movement begins to happen in the tectonic plates. Islands shift, mountains shift. It's probably not that they're taken out of the way, but that they're moved. They're removed from their place. So you find them, they're supposed to be there. They're over there. So the very foundation of creation begins to move. It's the thing that you and I take for granted. I grew up in California. I know the world of earthquakes. I remember seeing cars move because of the Richter scale being tipped. And when earthquakes happen in California, you don't just go about your day. You stand in doorways, you hide under coffee tables. The sun and the moon darken, the stars falling to earth. Those are the things in in Genesis chapter two that are given so that man may know the seasons and the years and the navigation. He begins to bother time. He begins to bother how we navigate. He begins to bother how we walk around on this planet. He begins to move mountains and move islands. So when that happens, how do people respond? Look at verse 15. You have a sevenfold group of people here. Then the kings of the earth, those who are in the highest positions of authority over nations, Number two, the great ones. Great ones is where we get the term magistrates from. They're part of government councils. They're in the cabinets of those who are the kings. The generals are the military leaders, the rich and the powerful. Those are the ones who have wealth and the ones who have influence. And everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Why does John write down the classes of people? Why does John write down the accomplishments of people who have risen among the ranks 
in the various sectors of society. He does it to demonstrate that there is no security in those things. There's no security in the earth. There's no security in the sun and the moon. There's no security in the stars. There's no security in the ambition you have about your job. There's no security in being a king, a general, and being rich, and being powerful, and being influential, in being free, or even being a slave. that God shakes everything down to the core of who we are. And what is exposed are the hearts of people. Look at verse 16. They call to the mountains and the rocks. This group of people gives perhaps the most theologically uh, accurate statement about God and who he is. Yet what is accompanied with accurate theology is not repentance, is not faith, is not remorse. That they have complete theological accuracy and they are filled with fear. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face who is seated on the throne. This group of people understands that the shaking that is happening on the planet is for a distinctly spiritual and divine reason. It's not arbitrary. They're connected. That what God is doing in heaven, or the Lamb is doing in heaven by opening the scrolls is corresponding to things that are happening on earth, and they recognize it for what it is. And their only request is that they would be hidden from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. I think if I'm right, that wrath is only attributed to Jesus one time, and it's when he cleanses the temple. The next time is right here. That these people realize that when I reject God, I reject his Savior, what is left for me is the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. Verse 17, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? What's the answer? No one. I don't care how wealthy you are. I don't care how politically savvy you are. I don't know how, I care how influential you are. I don't care what high position you may have in military or government. Then when it comes to the wrath of God, no one can stand. That everyone will be ultimately exposed. And as Hebrews says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, where are you? I mean, this day is coming, right? Christians believe that this day is coming where God will be revealed Thessalonians says, in heaven with his angels in flaming fire. How do you apply a text like this? It's a sobering text, is it not? It makes you begin to evaluate what kind of choices am I making today? Am I making choices in light of this day? Now, Listen, you may not 
die for your faith. In fact, there are many in the history of our church who have not died for their faith. But a Christian must be willing to die for their faith. When Jesus talks about following him, he says, anyone who would come after me must deny themselves, take up their cross, their instrument of execution. You know, crucifixion is a pretty pretty divisive thing, right? It, it, It declares that they hate me for who I am and what I have done. That's what Jesus does, right? When Jesus talks about taking up his cross, we are taking up our cross and following him. We are picking up the own means of our execution and following him into the grave that we might come out the other side raised from the dead. So let me, let me press on this a little bit. These martyrs give their life for the word of God and the testimony that they had borne. One of the ways that you know a Christian in their culture and in their day and time is not the ultimate death, though that says something about a Christian. It's all of the little deaths leading up to the real death. You with me? It's the denying myself, taking up my cross daily, and following him. It's this movement in our lives where we're, you know, we talk, talk about walking with Jesus as if Jesus is like over here and giving me counsel and all that. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, right? So Jesus is here and I'm back here, which means the decisions I'm making to walk in faithfulness to Jesus Christ in the steps that he's leading me in are informed by the word of God and the testimony of my day, right? So I begin to make decisions in my life differently. I don't just come to church, ask Jesus to forgive my sins, and then go about pursuing all of my academic, political, economic pursuits. Like, if you're in a position of influence in your marketplace, in your job, if you're a boss somewhere, you ought to be a different boss than other bosses that don't know, love, and serve Jesus. You with me? That men, we ought to be different husbands if the one who died for us and laid his life down, tells us to lay our lives down for our wives. Amen? Amen. That we should be making decisions as Christian families that are explicitly Christian. Amen? Okay. You gotta be with me here. This is so important. There should be some things that I stop doing because of the word of God. There should be some things that I start doing because of the word of God. There should be stances that I have because of the word of God that are explicitly tied to the word of God. Where I don't do that because God's word says. I do this because God's word says. And you can kill me and take my job and my money and my wealth and my influence. Because he has called me to follow him. It worries me for us and for Christians at large when we look the same as every other family. 
when our men look the same as every other men, as women in our church look the same as every other set of women. You are called to walk with him in a day and age where there is evil and wickedness out there. You are called to know the word of God, to give testimony to it, to your friends and your family, in your workplace, with your kids, to your spouse, for you to lead the employees in your workplace differently because you believe in the word of God and giving testimony to it and where he's called you to live. And guess what? It might cost you something. But the souls under the altar, they see him. And they know that the lives that they have lived for his name are worth it. You remember the, I'll close here, but can I have the band come too? You remember the story of the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes and he goes, Jesus, what do I got to do to do, do all these things and make it to heaven? And Jesus says, you know the commandments, keep the commandments, right? And he goes, all these things I've kept since my youth. And Jesus says, one thing you lack, take your possessions, sell it all, and come and follow me and you'll have what? treasure in heaven, right? And the backside of that parable is the funniest thing. It's one of the funniest spots in scripture. I don't know if you laugh when you read the Bible. Sometimes I laugh when I read the Bible because it's just so like, it's so me. And it's the questions I ask. This is from Matthew 19. Matthew 19, Peter, he, he's watching this whole thing go down. And they ask Jesus, well, gosh, if this guy's saved, the rich people, the influential people aren't saved, what are we going to do? How could anybody be saved? And they get to the other, the other side of, uh, of the rich young ruler, and Jesus says something beautiful, right? With man, this is impossible. But all things are possible with God. And then Peter asks the question that you and I ask. What about the times that I sacrifice for Jesus? What about the times when, because of the word of God, I am more generous than I usually am? What about times because of the word of God where I refuse to engage in sexual sin? What about the times, God, when, when it costs me something to know you and to follow you? Peter said this. See, we've left everything and followed you. We left our careers. We left our popularity. We left our family. Our dad owns the business. We're walking away from it because of you, Jesus. Don't you know what it's costing us? We've left everything. This guy has it all. And we've left it all to follow you. What then will we have? Isn't that a penetrating question? What do I get? What's the benefit? What's the opportunity cost, Jesus? Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last do you know why that's so hard for my soul? 
It's because I sow faithfulness to Jesus Christ and it doesn't come up right away. But Jesus says there's coming a day that when you sow acorns in faithfulness, one day they will be oaks of righteousness and you will be safe with him. Don't miss the opportunity to sow acorns now. God hasn't, hasn't rigged it to have immediate blessing. There might not be immediate blessing in your lifetime. Are you okay with that? That I will go to the grave with some prayers unanswered. But there's coming a day when he will make it all right. Father in heaven, we need to be reminded of these things. We need to be reminded of the, the choices that we make and the gravity of them. So Father, for those of us in this room who are wrestling over faithfulness to you right now, I pray that you would give us courage and enlighten our eyes for that day, that we would make decisions in light of our future and bring them back into our presence. That we would lay hold of faithfulness to you, that we would trust you with our loss that you would be the treasure of our hearts. Father, that you would be the treasure in the hearts of the people in this church. That no matter what the culture says or what our careers say to us, that we would find ultimate safety and security in the blood of the Lamb who knows our name. So Father, may all these things that captivate our attention fade in light of the promise of a future with you. That we would look forward with our prayers to the day when you will return. So Father, do that in us, work that in us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.